So I grew up from a very young age, really kind of going like, why am I here? So purpose for me was massively important. And I think partly from really seeing my father just really commit to women's health, women's reproductive rights and families access to reproductive rights all around the world. So I can remember at age about nine and just saying to him, like, when will I find my thing? So really being that young child that already knew I was going to be a social entrepreneur. How am I going to find it? Where will I find it? And he kind of gave me the kind of really frustrating answer, um, which is, you'll know. You'll know when you found it. Over the course of the series, we have often asked our guests about what they would change to education to equip a generation of children with the skills they need to survive and thrive in an AI-driven future. This week's guest, Julia Black, is at the forefront of that innovation, designing an educational approach that unleashes the talent and unlocks the passion and true potential of every child. As the founder and CEO of Explorium, Julia's Lights On methodology is changing the way we think about education. In part one, we discuss how finding her purpose in life was always on her mind. Julia discusses the huge impact of her parents, her father's influence in her seeking a life of social impact believing that anything you set your mind to is possible and being true to your authentic self. Julia also reflects on how her father's adventurous spirit was balanced by her mother's more cautious influence in creating a stable and secure home environment. Julia recounts her father's story, being written off as a dyslexic neurodiverse child to becoming a doctor and being one of the UK's first social entrepreneurs by forming Mary Stopes Foundation for Female Reproductive Rights. Julia describes how her father pushed her to confront fear, live outside her comfort zone and to embrace failure and how it's had an enduring value. We also cover her own educational experience, seeking out her purpose in early life, discovering the power of storytelling to create social impact during a year in South America, and then returning to the UK and persisting in pitching ideas to the UK broadcaster Channel 4 that led her to become an award-winning documentary filmmaker. In part two, we focus on Julia discovering her true purpose, her pursuit of educational reform, creating her groundbreaking Lights On platform, how serendipity played its part and how the pandemic is providing the opportunity to scale the platform globally. I hope you enjoy the vision, vitality and unfolding story of Julia Black. Julia, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, and a big shout out to Dan McDougall for recommending you. Thank you, Dan. Really excited to have this chat with you. Okay, well, let's, let's jump in. So you've had a really interesting life in filmmaking and uh, more recently in educational reform and innovation. But it would be really good if you could put context around that and start talk to us about your your childhood and your upbringing, particularly your interesting family environment, which I don't think was being brought up in one place or one school. So perhaps you could give us a little overview of that. So I had um, what I consider to be a really idyllic childhood in many ways and came from a, well, my family is sort of pioneers in their own right. So my dad worked from the garden shed (laughs) Um, long before every it's become very popular now obviously home learning but he was working in the garden shed building um, what ended up you know a a charity in 40 countries all around the world. I yeah lived in Kenya when I was sort of young between the ages of two to five and then we kind of returned to England and ended up living in the house my father grew up. So always really had this kind of big feeling of identity of being part of a global community rather than kind of being British. I haven't really ever identified as that necessarily. And just really knowing, I guess, that when you set your mind to doing something, 
you can achieve it because I kind of lived and breathed that and sort of really saw that happen with what my mum and dad achieved yeah with the work that they did. So talk a bit about your mother and father's influence on you I mean your father was I mean he obviously set up this this charity which I believe is called Mary Stopes. Mary Stopes International so he was probably one of the sort of I guess original social entrepreneurs Again, now it's much more of a sort of a common term, you know, this idea of having a, a sort of a social business using using um, business principles for a force for good. And he had a massive impact. Both of my parents had a massive impact on me. But I think I always identified much more with my dad as a maverick. He, he really was a maverick. He was kind of, you know, he was one of those people that really didn't care what other people thought about him, which infuriated my mum at times and obviously embarrassed me and my sister at times. But I think I kind of really inherited that, this strong sense of like, if you're here to make change, then you haven't got time to really care about what people think about you. And he was just really, really authentically him, which now kind of is becoming more and more like one of my really important values that I kind of really hold and really close to me about being authentic, especially with the work I'm now doing in education. So I think we had lots of chats and I think he recognized in me something, a bit of himself. And I think he kind of sort of, so we always had lots of talks about, you know, business, social business, impact, you know, making an impact in the world. So I grew up from a very young age, really kind of going like, why am I here? So purpose for me was massively important. And I think partly from really seeing my father just, you know, really commit to, you know, women's health, women's reproductive rights and, you know, working passionately to sort of, you know, women and families access to reproductive rights all around the world. So I can remember at age about nine, probably seven or nine, um, because we were definitely now living in the family home where he, my father had grown up and um, just saying to him, like, when will I find my thing? So really being that young child that already knew I was going to be a social entrepreneur, like, how am I going to find it? Where will I find it? And he kind of gave me the kind of really frustrating answer, um, which is, you'll know, you'll know when you found it. I just remember as a child, like, you know, shutting my eyes and trying to really, really think that if I just thought I was going to get this light bulb moment and then I would discover it which is kind of ironic now with everything I know now. I'm a neuro coach, so I've kind of really learned how to neurohack my mind and actually learned that you really want an answer to come to you. You actually really need to silence your mind. So it's quite interesting now, you know, to look back at that young girl who just knew I'm here for a reason and I want to find it. And that's kind of really sort of marked my, I guess, my, yeah, my life to this point, really. And my mum, I think in terms of my mum, just to sort of touch base with her is that she was there. She supported my, my dad in his mission and in growing the charity, but she was also always there for us as a family. So I kind of had both. I had the kind of the inspirational entrepreneur who was also very much there because he worked from home and he really gave us his time at the weekends. But then also this kind of, yeah, this rock solid mum who was there for us as well. And what about um, siblings? Do you have a sister? So I've got an older sister who was amazing and she's actually now working with me which is kind of really 
interesting and has obviously brought up lots of things <laughs> for me, <laughs> having to look at the dynamics and things like that. But she was always, I guess, yeah, she, I always felt she was really there for me. So a really kind of strong childhood, surrounded by people kind of who believed that, you know, things were possible um, if we set our minds to it. And failure was just built in. Failure was just built into my childhood, you know, in a kind of really positive way. What was it that triggered your father to set up um, the charity in the first place and go on the path of social entrepreneur? Because like you say, being one of the first, that was a quite a bold move to make in, in the sort of what, 1960s? I mean, it's the, exactly, it's late 60s, um, early 70s. He was a doctor, so he was interesting in himself because he was severely dyslexic and didn't actually read until he was about 13. At his funeral, his sister said, you know, that he was the naughtiest boy in this school. <laughs> but he went to um, Dartington, which was like a progressive school. So they moved, you know, they moved out sort of, you know, dur- during the war and they went down to, to Dartington. So he was kind of allowed to be him. And I think that was really sort of what gave him that strength and courage to tap into his neurodiverse brain rather than to sort of like hide it and try and overcompensate for it. So he kind of, I think he got ill when he was about 13 and he had to spend about six weeks in bed and that's when he taught himself to to read. And then he went on to be a doctor. But he had been written off, which is interesting, been written off by, you know, a a psychologist saying, well, he'll never amount to anything, you know, because obviously his mum thinking like, what's wrong with him? Why can't he, you know, why can't he just learn? And, you know, like lots of parents say these days, but he would just do naughty things. He locked the teachers in the staff room and they had to get the fire brigade to get them out. You know, (laughs) he had visitors come to the school and they, you know, they put cow dung in their shoes. You know, all of this, he he really did sort of um, push the boundaries. And when he qualified as a doctor, they drove overland. So this would have been in the early 60s, overland to, from England to Australia and he wow. so in a combi van and, and all these, I mean, it's incredible, really. And then he also then, they drove through Africa as well. And he basically was doing his kind of house doctor kind of positions as, as locums throughout Africa. They move on, stay somewhere and then move on. And I think it was then really he thought about this time when he was as a young doctor, you know, helping this, this woman who had brought her, her son to him. And he, obviously, as a doctor, you know, was kind of trying to help the the young child survive. And he did. He was very successful. And he just talks about that moment where, you know, he kind of took the child all excited, saying he's going to be all right. And really sort of seeing the mother kind of just really feel, how am I going to feed, you know, how am I going to feed them, him, along with my other children. And so I think it was at that point that he sort of realized that the importance of Every child really needed to be wanted in this world. And that kind of really got him sort of moving and sort of turning the path to kind of looking at family planning, looking at reproductive rights and everything in that direction. So, And equally at the time then, obviously, there was, you know, the concern from an environmental point of view of, you know, population and and things. But I think it was that pivotal moment for him where he realised that not that the mother obviously didn't, you know, the mother didn't want her child to, to die, but this just that dilemma, I guess, of I've got five or six kids already and I can't feed them. So 
So was there any sort of, uh, would you say, any defining moment or memory from your childhood that you think has stuck with you? I mean, obviously it was a very colourful and inspiring sort of environment that you grew up in. There's one that I've had to draw on recently, actually, when I started to, you know, have to work with my own mind and, and my limiting beliefs. And it's, I was about sort of seven. And so again, just to set the scene, every weekend, my dad was very hands-on with us in terms of like, you know, we were outside all the time. We were riding motorbikes. We were riding horses. We were kind of, we had this pond with this swing that went over this pond, which was like hanging from this massively old yew tree. So that was kind of our life. It's like on the weekends, dad was around, but it was like always being pushed beyond my edges for sure, physically. There's one memory that I recently had to draw on, which was really interesting. And that was, I'm up a tree. So this old yew tree, which is like hundreds of years old. And it's, I'm probably up about, I don't know, four meters high. I'm seven years old. And I'm sort of standing on this like very thin plank. So like a bra, a thin sort of round plank. So it's not even flat, it's round. And my dad's up there in the tree with me. And I've got the swing, the rope. So it's a rope swing with just a stick as the seat. And the challenge, which is what he grew up doing, was that I had to jump out with the onto and land on that the twig, which was the seat, and swing over the pond and go really high up the other end. And I'm there, my legs are shaking because you know I'm up there, you know, really high. There's a gap of about a foot between the rope, the seat that I've got to get on. I'm having to lean out. My dad's holding me so that I don't fall. And he's just going, come on. He always he said, you know, come on, sweetie, come on, just, just jump. You'll be okay. But my legs are just like really, really wobbling. And he spent, I don't know how long it was he spent up with me, but he was patient and coaching me. Then he would get a little bit more frustrated because I'm just like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And eventually, you know, that sort of as many weekends, you know, ended up sort of like, okay. And he would get down, we'd both get down and I wouldn't do it. And obviously I was kind of thinking about it. And I went back to him and I said, dad, you've just got to put me on it and you've got to throw me off. So he went back up <laughs> to this, you know, branch. He, he was holding the rope. He was holding me. I'm dangling, you know, over sort of, you know, however many meters up. And he just throws me out around the yew tree because you had to kind of jump on it, but go around this yew tree. And it was just incredible. And it was that sort of moment where it was just like, oh, I experienced that thrill, obviously, where your stomach just absolutely churns but also just feeling, okay, I can do this now. So after that, I just got up and I jumped myself. So it was almost like, it's this that sort of sense of I can't do this. My dad believing in me, me not being able to do it, him facilitating me, and then I could. And the reason it's so pivotal, I think, now I know, is because when I started looking at like, what was holding me back with my, you know, with my business and, you know, in life, what was the glass ceiling on me? I looked for that time of where, you know, I was having that belief of like, I can't do it. Maybe I haven't got what it takes to do it. And my coach at the time, she said, when is the earliest memory of you having that thought? And I immediately, it was like a split second of visual. I was up there at that tree and, and really powerful. And I think for me, my dad had always represented that person that really just believed I could do it, you know, but equally allowed that sort of sense of failure to happen, but then didn't give up. It's really interesting to, to have a, a parent that 
deliberately is pushing you into a, a situation that many parents would perceive as risk. I mean, we're all familiar today with the, sort of the, 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 the term, the sort of the snowflakes sort of generation with parents that have kept them safe and secure and, and they've not allowed them to discover the world and, and experience risk and, and fear and failure. So it's fascinating that your father was actually but deliberately pushing you, encouraging you, because that there must be no, I mean, that was above a pond. So you've, if you'd fallen, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been great. It wouldn't have been great. And I mean, that's just the half of it, really, you know, with the motorbike. I mean, at, again, at his funeral, one of the things that we wanted, me and my sister wanted to share with this time when, you know, we had this Yamaha 80. And again, I, I think I was five when we got it. So I was always young. You know, I was always the one that couldn't do these things as, as, um, as my older sister could, because she was like two and a half, nearly three years older. We'd always be out and, you know, the kids from the lane and, and sort of nearby would come down. And one of the things that he got us doing was, or got her doing, it was he built this ramp for us, or we built this ramp together. And he was just, come on, Jane, because Jane was really into Evil Knievel at the time. Right? We were quite <laughs> And he just said, you can do it. And he got me and, and our friends, Pam and Alan, who are these twins that we always used to hang out with, to lie down after the ramp. You know, and Jane's challenge was to like, go up the ramp and obviously clear us. And again, it was, that was our childhood. It was like, it was never in the comfort zone, but there really, it was always that sort of sense of, they never felt like there was any disbelief in, in dad that we couldn't do it. Yeah. And so I think it was quite unusual. So how did your mother react to this? Yeah, she was a bit more cautious. So she was always, because obviously we did have the swing over the pond and we always took great pleasure in whenever friends came down, even adult friends, they would get them going on. And of course, they would always fall in the pond, right? Because we had all of these tricks that we used to do. We used to kind of go on them backwards. We used to run around in circles. So we got very, very proficient in, in you know, rope swing, as did my dad. And so often we'd be knocking on the door and be like, oh, Pam's fallen in again. So this kind of was this constant like washing machine going on. So she, she was kind of just a little bit more cautious, but she kind of, again, I think trusted him. I think my dad was one of those people that did make you believe in yourself and really trust. Yeah, we just trusted him. And I think he was very much like that in his work that he did. He, you know, he had a very strong, loyal people that worked for him that just trusted this incredible, crazy vision that he had that, you know, where everybody else would say, you know, that's not possible. You can't do that kind of thing. He was able to lead people to, to achieve it. And yes, that's something that's just really stuck with me, like leadership in that way where you believe in somebody is like really, yeah, it's just an inspiring thing to be able to sort of, to experience. The way you describe your childhood sounds like one of abundance of uh, experiences and direction and inspiration. But we always do ask if there was any sort of scare, we always ask people to live in a, an environment of scarcity or abundance, but it sounds to me like it's, it was very abundant. But it, there was, uh, I've obviously done a lot of work recently around my money mindset to again, just look at look at what's, what's holding me back there. And I think there, there was this, my, definitely my dad's mindset was abundant. Anything was possible. If you wanted something, you went for it. Didn't matter if you didn't quite get it the first time around, you just kept going. And I think in my mum's mind, it was almost just sort of much more, just a bit more scarcity mindset of like, oh, we don't need that. So we think just things like, think like my dad wanted pigs. 
And I spent like weeks like clearing out the pigsties that had got overgrown and everything like that. And my mum was just like, Tim, we don't need pigs. He, as a young, when he was a young doctor in Australia, he learned to fly and he was a pilot. And, you know, he wanted, I remember he would start flying microlites and he wanted a microlite. And again, she was just like, no, you know, don't be so ridiculous. So there was definitely that kind of mixed message. And especially around, around money, you know, we never needed or wanted for money, but we equally, you wouldn't know it to look at my dad. I mean, he, you know, it's like he never really, um, he wore the same clothes pretty much all his life. <laughs> huh. um, so, it, so there was, there was this nice sense of abundance of knowing that, you know, things were possible, but also counteracted sometimes with that more cautious sort of mindset. Okay. So what was education like for the young Julia? Given that you were probably quite a self-assured, spirited young girl, teachers must have sometimes found you. When I look back, and obviously now what I know about learning and education and the level I know about it, it didn't really set me on fire and it didn't capture my imagination. And I think I always, I definitely wasn't the naughtiest girl in my school. I, I, I think I kind of pushed that boundary I never was like motivated to be one of the high achievers. I didn't identify as that. And it wasn't important to me to get the grades. I think because there was such a strong message of like, well, you can succeed without the grades. But equally, I kind of didn't also want to really step over into the line of, um, so I would push the boundaries just enough to let the teachers know that I, I could, but more on the sort of cheeky side. And so that, so I sort of played that line quite well. But when I look back, I don't think I really discovered who I was or who I could be until I was kind of around 40. And and that to me is a real shame because I like you say, I had this real sense of who I was in my home and and the core of, you know, really not caring. And then I had this sort of time at school, which was just sort of like, ah, I'll go. And I, and I just it was for me, I loved it. It was social. It was about kind of exploring who I was sort of socially. And then, you know, obviously went all the way up to a master's level. And even then, when I look at that, I I just think I was kind of going along with it. Yeah, because, I mean, the path you took of business, marketing, accounting, and then international relations could have gone in so many different directions. So it does sort of give you a sense that you you were on a journey without any sort of real direction. What ideas were coming into your head as you were probably still seeking out your purpose at that point? I think it was an entrepreneur. So that was really, you know, in in me, I kind of wanted to make lots of money so I can make massive impact. So that was always the conversation. Like my dad had set up the charity, but he really, he was an entrepreneur at heart. So he had, he, the charity in Morris Stokes is run on business principles to be self-sufficient, you know, and things like that. So I think that conversation, I knew that I was going to find a way to make impact and it was going to be through a business model. And so I kind of went into it through that way, I guess. But really more, when I look back, a steer from my dad. And obviously now when I look back and I'm, you know, have, I'm in business and, and really know what it takes, it's like, oh my goodness, like, you know, what are we doing, doing business degrees? It's ridiculous. So I think that was it. I think what was going through my mind is like, I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn how to get my business. And then the international relations kind of came after a year in um, South America. I went to South America and traveled for a year in my early 20s. And that's really when I started to become interested in filmmaking as a tool 
because the job after my first job I ever had was marketing publicity assistant to a, a publishers. And it was just one of those jobs where it was just that realization after university is just like, this isn't it. This isn't what I've been thinking about since I was nine. Like when I get out there into the big wide world and I'm going to start to make a difference, it's not this. And it just felt so frivolous and so lacking, I guess, in purpose. And so then I began to sort of think, I'm just going off to South America and I'm going to take her, at the time it was a high eight camera, and I'm going to go and um, make a film. And the film where I had the idea was uh, I met someone at a conference and we started talking about South America and I, and I was doing some work with Morris States International. It was around contraception. And she says, I've just come back from the, you know, the rainforest in Ecuador. And the thing that these women were asking us for was like, oh, if you come back, please bring us some condoms. And so I thought, right, I'm going to get a camera and I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to make a film. And so I think I began to then really sort of see like, right, this is my tool. Maybe it's not business. Maybe it's filmmaking is my tool to make the impact because I love telling stories and I see our lives as narratives that are unfolding. So I think, I think it was, it was me thinking I was on one track to be this entrepreneur and then ending up really just doing a job and feeling very, very empty in that job. And uh, just on the, the trip to South America, taking a year there out, was that on your own? Yeah, I went out on my own. Um, well, we went, went out with two friends to start with and then they left and I stayed there. And then I was, my, my boyfriend at the time was working in the BBC and I convinced him to pack that job in at some point um, and join me out there. So for several months, I was out on my own. And again, I remember going to my dad and just sort of saying, um, you know, look, I'm thinking this is what I want to do. I want to take a year out and I'm going to go to South America. And again, he was just like, brilliant. You know, you'll go there and you'll learn Spanish because that's the only way to learn another language. So, you know, it was that sense of adventure. Go for it. You're just going to learn something no matter what. And I look back and yeah, I mean, it was crazy really when I look back now and think, I literally quit my job and just said, I'm going out to South America. <laughs> and it was amazing. It was, you know, it's one of the kind of, yeah, continents that I have felt this real resonance with and the Andes are just these wow I mean for me nature is like really really important and to be there in the Andes and just feel that real sense of insignificance in a really important way was I think really yeah really important for me. So your filmmaking when you came back and and set up your production company as you said you had the sense that this filmmaking around maybe around social issues was your purpose and you started to make films around HIV, mental health issues. Again, that was probably quite early for filmmakers to be. I mean, now everyone's, there's plenty of examples of production companies with social impact storytelling. But at that point, what were you guided by in doing that? And how did you focus in on the issues that you were telling stories around? So that was when, because I, I, I lived out and after South America, I lived in Boston for a year where I did my MA and I met a young Indian woman who had moved over there to, to America and she was a filmmaker. And by this stage, it was like I'd been learning filmmaking and, and so we started making films there together. And then one of the, the friends that I lived with, she did a lot of work. She was doing an MA in public health and she was doing a lot of work with a, a charity that worked with HIV positive um, children. And so when I came back to the UK, I emailed Channel 4 and pitched them an idea and 
Channel 4 Current Affairs, pitched them this idea and they said no. Okay, so I pitched them another idea, almost as a return email, you know, probably within the same hour. Another email, another idea. She said no. And then it was like another idea. And she said, look, why don't you just come in and meet me? Do you remember which commissioning editor it was? Yeah, it was um, Fran O'Brien. And it was just amazing because she just sort of like, oh, it was almost like, I'm never going to get rid of this woman. And, you know, so just come in and meet me. And it really just came from there. And, and then obviously Channel 4 had the Independent News Fund. And so I just pitched, um, well, World AIDS Day. Why didn't I do something around British teenagers? Because obviously HIV then was a very taboo. We didn't really talk about it. And got the commission through the news fund. And at the time, obviously, I wasn't a filmmaker. So that I teamed up with another production company. And then from there, I just kind of kept pitching ideas. And then I got a three-part commission for a documentary series with Channel 4. Again, of course, I wasn't experienced enough to kind of take that commission on. I worked with with Pillarbox and, and this woman called Claire Richards. And that was really, again, that was all around teenage sexuality and the fact that puberty is starting earlier and what does this mean in terms of us, you know, sex education and stuff. So again, really drawing on what I knew about reproductive health and stuff like that. And it just kept going like that, really. And one amazing thing that happened is I was really kind of, I'm drawn into understanding like what makes people tick. And I was really passionate about understanding ethnic conflict. It was the kind of, you know, obviously Bosnia and then Kosovo and and those kind of conflicts. And I wanted to really explore that whole idea of like people saying, oh, well, it happens there, but it can never happen here. And so I actually got a um, development from David Lloyd and, and, and Fran to go and do this development around, but what if it could happen here? And really looking at the dynamics between the Welsh and the English is what I decided to go and explore. You could have looked north of the border quite easily. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and it was just fascinating. So I got this development and I got this incredible director, Peter Kosminski, who had agreed to be the director if I got managed to get the kind of the drama feature. And we were now talking, you know, this million pound budget and it's going to be this kind of like, you know, it happens here. And I went, I spent three months traveling around in Wales, which was incredible because as an English woman, you know, I guess, you know, and especially now with white privilege, you know, and the discussion around Black Lives Matter, it's like, I hadn't ever really experienced that sort of prejudice, but I was going in there to listen. And I, you know, I met with some of the the Welsh, you know, were called terrorists who were responsible for the the fires and the bombings during, you know, the 60s -hmm. in Wales. And it was just fascinating. It was fascinating sitting down opposite somebody and him and really just having a very open conversation as to why they don't like the English, you know, and being both sides of us being open to hearing that and understanding that. And I actually found, and it's one of those things I think I, I, I do need to make happen at one point in my life, but I found this village that were, was a Welsh-speaking village and they agreed that sort of there were these kind of, this English, really kind of this English family and these, you know, really strong Welsh characters. And as I say, as somebody who had been sort of taking direct action and they agreed to host the drama And it would have been so incredible because what I wanted to do, and this is what Peter Kosminski really excels at, is I wanted to link up with people who have been for a real and really show how quickly fear, propaganda and, you know, circumstance can escalate to a point where neighbours really do, you know, kind of go to war. And then, you know, 
what happened, as with you know current affairs, as you know, what happened, um, 9-11 happened, and the whole political agenda moved, and it was no longer about the war and ethnic conflict, and it was now about you know terrorism. And I think I, I still do think at some point I want to go back and, and make that because I think we need to understand the human mind and that even when we can sit here and say, well, we would never do that, we have to also look at like, but what have we been complicit in by not taking action and things like that? So, yeah, that was really my filmmaking career, sort of. I mean, I think just to reflect on that, I mean, the the current environment of the, the political polarization, the identity politics that we're living, this world of identity politics that we're living through at the moment, it's creating an environment for that type of neighborly, let's say, hatred to emerge and to escalate very easily. I mean, the idea you talk about Bosnia, you just have to think back to what happened in Rwanda. So, you know, you, I shudder to think uh, of another, let's say another four years of what we've had here in the US of what could happen to communities in the, the North, South and, and the middle of America um, that are being torn apart by their, their leadership, both on the left and the right. So I think what you're doing is probably... There probably is a need to, to go back and revisit that. And, and just looking at, you know, I did all the research into like, what is it that political leaders use to create that, right? Because it is led. It's a, we lead people into fear, but you need something. And there's this thing called the emotional tap that you can turn back on. So even that, like you're, you, you say, you know, you grew up in, in, you're Scottish, I'm English. We could have that conversation and we would probably very easily get to the emotional tap where if I, you, you know, if someone around you began turning that up for you, you and me would get into a heated discussion and very quickly we could walk away pissed off with each other and, you know, not talk to each other again. And that is what happens when human beings do not acknowledge points in history that are still an open emotional wound. And, and it was incredible. And in Wales, it was the, the drowning of the village Bala, near Bala, which was sort of used for water, for the Liverpool, I think it was the Liverpool Water Board, to bring water to the English. So when you find an emotional tap in history, I think it is important that we do look at that both sides and allow the voices that felt betrayed, felt repressed or suppressed to talk about it. But equally, I think the part where we're getting to now in society is is the other side also to listen and come to the table in a very different way. Well, it's also what you what you reference about individually, your unfolded narrative. I mean, these, these emotional taps are based around stories that pass down through generations that are wounds that, that need to be healed. They're part of an, an ongoing narrative. So unless we confront them as a society through really education, these will just go on and persist. We'll leave part one there. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.